Good evening. Um, I'm going to introduce Dr. Sachs, although many of you probably have read his books and know his bio pretty well. After graduating from uh, MIT and the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Sachs practiced as a primary care physician and child psychologist in Maryland for 18 years. His experiences led him to see the need for more study into the development of adolescence and the cultural influences that affect it. In 2005, he published his first book, Why Gender Matters. Since then, in an effort to help parents understand their children and their own role, he has traveled and studied not only throughout the United States, but to over 11 countries. He has been featured in the national and international press and has written three more books, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, and The Collapse of Parenting. And I just recently heard today that Why Gender Matters is being a second edition, updated, you'll want to get it in August. Um, although he has returned to clinical practice in Pennsylvania, he continues to work with schools and community groups, encouraging and educating parents. This evening, Dr. Sachs will share his knowledge about the cultural pressures our children face in 2017, especially the girls. In Girls on the Edge, he looked at the questions of how girls perceive their feminine identity, the phenomena of addictions and obsessions, and the effects of social media. Combine this with the tendency of, for many parents, to treat their children as adults, and the stage is set for a turbulent adolescence. We look for him to him tonight for insights garnered from many years' experience as we continue the journey to raise strong, adaptive young women. Please welcome Dr. Sachs to Oakhurst. Uh, thank you, Mrs. Hadley, and I certainly want to thank leadership of this school for giving me the opportunity to uh, meet with the students throughout the day, to meet with the teachers, um, and to meet with you this evening. So I have prepared a handout for you. You don't need it now, and I encourage you not to pull it up now. I, I will show you this link again. Uh, the handout is my name, leonardsacks.com slash oakcrest.pdf. Uh, it is case sensitive, it is all lowercase, but again, you don't need it now. And please don't pull it up now. It is not intended for a phone. It's intended for a large screen. Uh, the function of the handout, first of all, is that the handouts are the notes that I would take if I were attending this uh, presentation. So you don't need to bother taking notes. Uh, secondly, the handout is an annotated bibliography. I'm going to be citing a lot of research. Uh, and if you want to read the primary sources, which I encourage you to do, uh, you will find them in the handout. But really the function of the handout is uh, in a week or two when you think to yourself, you know, there is something useful in that talk, but I can't remember what it was. Uh, my hope is that by looking at the handout, it will jog your memory and you'll remember uh, what you were trying to recall. Uh, so I want to begin with a quiz question for you. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Uh, this is referring to a longitudinal cohort study, meaning a study where uh, investigators recruited a large number of young children and followed them throughout childhood, uh, throughout adolescence, and into adulthood. Uh, but when the kids were 12 years old, 
Uh, they were interviewed uh, carefully, and uh, uh, classmates were interviewed, teachers were interviewed, so as to form for each child a uh, quantified measure for each child. To what extent is this child open to new ideas? Uh, work with the school to get a combined measure of grade point average and IQ. Uh, to what extent does this child exhibit self-control? To what extent does this child have emotional stability and uh, quantify for each child friendliness and agreeableness? Then you follow each of these children another 20 years. So they're no longer children. They're 32-year-old adults. And at age 32, you track these uh, adults down and you determine for each, each one a measure of health, including general physical health as well as addiction or lack of addiction to uh, substances or alcohol. Uh, for each individual, you also determine, uh, is this person employed or unemployed? Uh, and uh, also a measure of life satisfaction and happiness. One of the five measures shown here strongly predicts health, wealth, and happiness. One of those five measures, quantified when the kid is 12 years old, strongly predicts health, wealth, and happiness in that individual 20 years down the road. The other four predict one or none of those three outcomes, the three outcomes being health, wealth, and happiness, and doesn't predict it very well. But one of these five measures strongly predicts health and wealth and happiness 20 years down the road. I'd like to see a show of hands. Who thinks that that parameter is openness to new ideas? Don't look at your neighbor, they don't know the answer. <laughs> Who thinks it's a combined measure of grade point average and IQ? Who thinks it is self-control? Who thinks it is emotional stability? Who thinks it is friendliness and agreeableness? I'm going to keep you in suspense. <laughs> if you leave early, you won't get the answer. But if you hang around uh, till the bitter end, uh, you will find out the answer to this question. So, I want to begin by going back 50 years. 50 years ago, there were good researchers in the United States who were studying immigrant children. Children who arrived in the United States from overseas. Children who did not speak English in the home. And researchers discovered that when kids arise, arrive in this country from overseas, they are at risk. If they don't speak English at home especially, they are at increased risk of becoming anxious or depressed compared to American kids who do speak English in the home. And so consensus arose uh, early on that when new immigrants arise in this country, arrive in this country from overseas, uh, we should get them speaking English and uh, not only teach the kids English, but try to teach the parents English, have the kids speaking English at home. Not out of prejudice, uh, but because there was good evidence that if you get that kid speaking English, you will improve outcomes. That that kid will be less likely to become anxious or depressed if they assimilate into American culture. And the first link in your handout is a monograph written by Dr. Milton Gordon, Oxford University Press, uh, collecting
mapping these various scholarly studies, uh, demonstrating that indeed, Becoming American is protective. Now, I'm not saying the 1960s were the good old days. Our culture was much more racist and sexist in that era than it is today. But there are no good old days. Every era has its challenges. Uh, but I don't think that we're really facing up to ours. Uh, in that era, 50 years ago, as I said, becoming American was a good thing. Provided protection decreased the risk of bad outcomes. That's no longer the case. So, the best way to conceptualize what contemporary scholars call the immigrant paradox is to imagine two households, adjacent homes in the same neighborhood. Each home consists of a mother, father, son, and daughter, uh, teenage son, teenage daughter, Mother and father have the same occupations in both households. Uh, household income is the same in both households. The main difference between these two homes is that in one home, mother, father, son, and daughter were born and raised in the United States, and they speak English at home. In the adjacent home, mother, father, son, and daughter were born and raised in Bangalore, India, and have just arrived here. And they don't speak English, they speak Gujarati. Now, in which home are we more likely to find that the teenage girl is binge drinking, is cutting herself with razor blades, has been diagnosed with an eating disorder, or has been diagnosed with anxiety or depression? On each of those parameters, it is many times more likely that the American girl has those problems compared to the girl who just arrived here from India. In which home is it more likely that the boy says school is a stupid waste of time, or has been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, or has been arrested for street racing. On each of those parameters, it's many times more likely that the American boy has those problems compared to the boy who just arrived here from India. When scholars first began to document about 15 years ago that there was this um, uh, dramatic effect, it seemed paradoxical. They were surprised because those scholars writing about this 15 years ago themselves were educated in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They, they grew up studying the earlier research showing that new immigrants were at increased risk compared to kids born and raised in this country. That becoming American protected you against bad outcomes. So to them it seemed paradoxical that new immigrants now enjoy an advantage. That becoming American is now a major risk factor. Hence the name, the immigrant paradox. But there's what doctors call a dose-response effect. The first week, the first month that that boy, that girl from India are here, they're very unlikely to have any of these problems that we see uh, commonly among American kids. But if the boy and girl stay here, if the boy and girl from India stay here, and especially if they start speaking English at home as a marker of assimilating into American culture, their risk begins to rise. And if they start speaking English at home, after three, four, or five years, their risk begins to approach that of kids born and raised in this country. This is what doctors call a dose-response effect. This is a familiar term in toxicology, uh, in the study of toxicity. Uh, dose-response effect refers to the fact that the more you're exposed to the toxin, the more likely you are to experience a bad outcome, an adverse effect. 
And these scholars conclude that America, American popular culture has become toxic to children and teenagers. Not using that phrase in a pejorative or derogatory sense, but in a descriptive sense. American popular culture is now toxic to children in that, and teenagers in that the more they are exposed to it, the more likely they are to suffer a bad outcome, an adverse effect. Uh, diagnosis of attention deficit in 1979, uh, only about 1% of American kids uh, diagnosed with ADD. CDC now tells us that 20% of American teenage boys, 10% of girls in this country have ADD. American teenagers now 14 times more likely to be on medication for ADD compared to British teen. In 1980, there was no difference between the United States and UK on that parameter. Pediatric bipolar disorder, an American child is now 40 times more likely to be diagnosed and treated for bipolar disorder compared to a child in Germany. 93 times more likely to be on medications such as Risperdal, Zyprexa, Geodon, and Seroquel compared to a child in Italy. So what happened? Why is becoming American now a major risk factor for anxiety, depression, drug and alcohol use, disengagement from school, and many other bad outcomes? Why are those bad outcomes so much more common for American kids today than they were a generation ago? To answer that question, I think it's helpful to take a step back and talk to comparative anthropologists. Uh, people who have spent their lives studying how different people have lived at different times, different places. People like Gilbert Hurt, and especially David Gilmore at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. And Dr. Gilmore was very generous with his time, and I, I said to him, talk to me about cultures that last. Cultures that have endured for thousands of years. Do they have anything in common? Is there something that all enduring cultures share? Let's think about Navajo, native people of the southwestern United States and contrast them with Orthodox Jews. These are two cultures we know a lot about. They've been around for thousands of years. They're still with us. Do they have anything in common? Well, if you ask that question in terms of what they eat or uh, what they drink, how they dress, or what their religious beliefs are, the answer is no. On those parameters, uh, they don't have anything in common. In fact, they could hardly be more different. And that's why I choose those two, because they are so different. But there's one characteristic that they share. One characteristic that the anthropologists tell us all enduring cultures share. All enduring cultures are characterized by strong bonds of respect across generations. So that's a photograph of Kinelda. Now if you know only a little about the Navajo and someone says, well, what's Kinelda? You might answer, it's a rite of passage. When a Navajo girl has her first menstrual period, she stays with her grandmother for four days and four nights. And during those four days and four nights, her adult female relatives call on her, aunts and cousins, and she demonstrates to them that she has indeed mastered the arts and crafts of Kimodama. Those arts and crafts that are taught by Navajo women to Navajo uh, girls and not to boys. But it's more than a rite of passage. It's a process that's been going on for two, three, four years uh, by the time this uh, girl actually has her menstrual period. And it's not about mother-daughter. A mom typically plays very little role. It's the grandmother and women of the grandmother's uh, generation who take the lead uh, in that teaching. Uh, you have a community of women for girls. 
and a community of men for boys. I'm not talking about teaching math, science, language, arts, or social studies. I'm talking about teaching what it means to be a woman. It's taught by a community of women to girls and a community of men to boys. So everybody's heard of our mitzvah, but if you're not connected to someone in the Orthodox Jewish community, you may not know that uh, everybody, every aspect of Jewish religious life in the Orthodox community is single sex. The boys and men worship here, there's a barrier, the girls and women worship here. Uh, so in an Orthodox synagogue, every Saturday you re read a prescribed portion of the five books of Moses. When you conclude that cycle and finish the last chapter of Deuteronomy, and you're going to start over with Genesis 1-1, that night all the men, and only the men, stay up traditionally dusk till dawn, uh, singing and dancing. You have older men with younger men with boys. A community of men teaches each boy, this is what it means to be a Jewish man. That's not the boy's father, it's another man in the synagogue. A community of women teaches the girls, this is what it means to be a Jewish woman. Now the content differs completely. What the Jewish girl is learning is totally different from what the Navajo girl is learning. The content differs completely, but the process is the same. In every enduring culture, a community of women teach the girls. A community of men teach the boys. And we used to be the same. By we, I mean North American, Anglophone, secular, people who speak English in the United States and Canada. And that's not a guess and it's not nostalgia. We have good scholars like Robert Putnam at Harvard who has over 20 years spent, led a, a legion of graduate students uh, collecting data, conducting structured interviews. They've conducted more than 100,000 structured interviews across the United States, uh, documenting that 50 years ago, you could go to any neighborhood uh, in the United States and you'd find a sewing circle. And who was in the sewing circle on Arlington, Virginia 50 years ago? Well, they'd dig it up and they find that there were older women, younger women, and teenage girls. Uh, organized not by kin relation, but by geographic proximity, meaning that these women were not related to one another. They just happened to live on the same block. Uh, they document not only formal, but also informal associations. Uh, again, 50 years ago, they find you could go to any neighborhood in uh, the United States on a Saturday afternoon, and you'd see a bunch of guys working with the hood of a car uh, in the driveway or out on the street. And they actually document who was in, who were those guys in Minot, North Dakota in 1967. Well, there were older men, younger men, and teenage boys. Uh, today, you drive around the United States on a Saturday afternoon, you might see uh, two old geezers working in the hood of their 65 Corvette, but the boys are not with them. The bonds across generations have been broken. The boys are indoors playing video games. Bowling used to be much more popular in the United States, but more importantly, from Dr. Putnam's perspective, it was done differently. 50 years ago, most of the bowling that happened in the United States was in bowling leagues. And Tuesday night might be the women's night, and Thursday night was the men's night. And once again, he and his crew dig up, okay, who was in the bowling league in Shaker Heights, Ohio, in 1967? And you find, well, there was this 71-year-old woman, this 53-year-old woman, this 27-year-old woman, 17-year-old girl, and a 12-year-old girl. 17-year-olds in the United States still go bowling, but they go bowling alone. The 
the title of Dr. Pandurin's best-known book, meaning not literally alone, but instead of a 17-year-old girl going bowling with a community of women, she's going bowling with a bunch of 17-year-olds, boys and girls mixed together, which as far as Dr. Putnam is concerned is bowling alone. When Dr. Putnam uses the word community, he means bonds across generations. And the bonds across generations have been broken in American culture. So that's one big change. Another big change uh, we can gather or glean from the work of Dr. James Coleman. James Coleman, Johns Hopkins sociologist, uh, again, led a team of graduate students uh, going across the United States 50 years ago and asking American teenagers questions and recording their answers. And one of the questions they liked to ask was, if all your friends wanted you to join a particular club, but one of your parents did not approve, would you still join? And 50 years ago, the majority of American teens answered that question, no. Even if all their friends wanted them to join a particular club, if one parent did not approve, they would not join. Because the good opinion of their parents mattered more than the combined opinion of all their peers. Between 2008 and 2015, I posed an updated version of that question to kids at many venues across the United States. I asked them, if all your friends wanted to try to sign up for a particular social media site, would you consult your parents first? And the most common answer I got from American kids was not yes, wasn't no, it was laughter. Kids would burst out laughing. As one girl said, my parents would probably think AskFM is some kind of radio station. Why would I ask them? Uh, to be sure, many American kids will say they love their parents, but the opinion of same-age peers matters more. And that's a really big change. Why does it matter? It matters because most cultures have been characterized by strong attachment. Across generations, kids have been looking to the grown-ups, but today kids, their first attachment is to their peers. Why does it matter? It matters because good parents offer unconditional attachment and affection, but peers can't. Good parents nurture, but peers don't. Good parents make sacrifices for their children without expecting anything in, in return, but same-age peers rarely do so for their friends. When the parent-child relationship is primary, when it matters more than all the other relationships in the child's life combined, then the child can relax. I have a 10-year-old daughter. Suppose she were to say to me, I hate you. I hate you. I'm never going to talk to you ever again as long as I live. If she were to say that, there would be consequences. And her mother and I would consult and decide what privileges she would lose and for how long. But you know what? Nothing fundamental is going to change. She will not lose her place in our house. Uh, she knows that I and my wife will still love her, or will always love her. There's nothing she can do or say that could change that. And so she can relax, knowing that there is nothing she can do or say that will lose her parents' love. But suppose she says those same words to a friend at school. I hate you. I never want to talk to you again, ever again, as long as I live. That friendship is over, or it is at least badly damaged. Uh, and perhaps can be repaired, perhaps not. And so you see uh, American girls walking around glued to their phones, checking for a text, because God forbid, Sonia sends you a text and you don't promptly respond. Sonia might think you're ignoring her. 
Some of you might think you don't like her. And you can be, go from being the most popular girl to being the odd girl out in one day, in five minutes. Peer relations are contingent and ephemeral. Nothing is assured. Everything can change. And if peer relations are primary, you're going to be anxious because it could all fall apart in a day. That's another important change. A third important change. Most cultures that last have taught respect for the adults. And again, that was true of American culture 50 years ago. Even if the parents were lousy parents who never taught anything about it, it didn't matter. The kid spoke English at home. They were immersed in a culture that taught respect with the most popular TV shows of that era, like Father Knows Best, My Three Sons, The Andy Griffith Show. The parents in these shows are consistently knowledgeable, competent, caring, reliable, productive, kind. Most popular, longest-running uh, television comedy in the United States today, The Simpsons. Homer Simpson is a bum, his son's an idiot, his wife varies. Sometimes she's clever, more often she's not. The only one of the four major characters who's reliably and consistently knowledgeable and wise is the daughter, Lisa. I'm not picking on the Simpsons. I don't see, see these shows as causes. I see them as symptoms. I actually have a lot of respect for the people who write for the Simpsons. I think they have great insight into what has happened in American culture. In one episode of The Simpsons, you get to see inside Homer Simpson's brain. Homer Simpson's brain has three major drives, sleep, donuts, and beer. I think there's a lot of insight there. If you imagine an American cartoon about an American man 50 years ago, how would it have depicted his brain? It would have depicted his entire brain as a sex drive. That was the stereotype of American men in that era. And not anymore. It's not about sex, it's about sleep, donuts, and beer. I think there's a lot of insight there. The testosterone levels of American men have fallen by half in the last 60 years. The testosterone level of a 20-year-old man today is roughly what the testosterone level of a 50-year-old man was two generations ago. Uh, today, one in three American men at university report difficulty achieving or maintaining an erection. As recently as 25 years ago, it was one in 40. Uh, doctors now report prescribing more Viagra for men under 30 than they are for men over 40. That's a big change. Uh, modern family, uh, shown here. The straight dad is consistently uh, an idiot whose uh, ridiculous antics uh, we are supposed to laugh at. The oldest daughter is consistently, though not always, wiser than her father. It's not just these shows. I, in writing my book, The Collapse of Parenting, I looked through the 150 most popular television shows on American television. Not one uh, consistently or even often portrays a parent as reliable, knowledgeable, competent, caring, or kind. And uh, you, you even go to the Disney Channel. Uh, you know, if you know nothing about the Disney Channel, you think, oh, Disney, that's probably family-friendly, right? Uh, no, not right. Every regular TV program on the Disney Channel uh, consistently portrays parents as, as incompetent, uh, out of touch, clueless. Uh, Dog with a Blog, shown here, 
the father, supposedly a school psychologist, knows nothing about the behavior or motivation of children. Uh, the talking dog uh, is much wiser than the dad. Again, we're supposed to laugh at the dad for all his ridiculous and stupid uh, recommendations. Uh, Liv and Maddie, the two girls, are as different as they can be. Uh, the one thing they agree on is that their mom, also supposedly a school psychologist, is out of touch, uh, utterly clueless about what kids want and need. This is contemporary American culture. If you were to say to a boy in 1970, be a gentleman, he knew what that meant. Even if his parents never taught him, if he spoke English, uh, he knew because he was immersed in American culture. He'd seen movies starring men like Paul Newman, Sidney Poitier, uh, Gary Cooper. He knew that being a gentleman meant being knowledgeable, competent, caring, kind, productive, standing up for the weak guy. So I was speaking to freshmen at Wabash College, and I said, would anyone care here to uh, venture a uh, definition for me? What is a gentleman? And a boy shot up his hand. He said, a gentleman is someone who's, who goes to gentleman clubs to watch girls take their clothes off. I said, okay, you know, that's, that's very funny. Uh, now, would anyone care to venture a more serious definition? Uh, and they can. Uh, they're struggling. They say, well, a gentleman uh, wears a three-piece suit. It's all about surface. Uh, but I don't blame the kids. How should they know? They have received no instruction. They have been raised in contemporary American culture, uh, which teaches nothing about being a lady or being a gentleman. If you were to say to a girl in 1970, be a lady, she knew what you meant. Again, even if the parents never talked about it, because she spoke English at home. She was immersed in a culture uh, that featured Grace Kelly, Audrey Hepburn, uh, Jackie Kennedy. She knew what it meant. Uh, but today, the culture gives no guidance or no constructive guidance. The American marketplace used to be quite different. That's a photograph of Sam Cooke. Fifty years ago, Sam Cooke had a number one hit song in this country. He sang, don't know much about history. He sang, now I don't claim to be an A student, but I'm trying to be, because maybe by being an A student baby, I could win your love for me. He goes on to mention French, geometry, and trigonometry, as subjects in which he's gonna try harder to earn an A instead of a B, because he believes that by earning an A instead of a B, he will raise his status in the eyes of the pretty girl. 50 years ago, the cultures, the people who spoke English at home, was the culture of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Simon and Garfunkel. That is not English-speaking culture today. It is certainly not the culture of people who live in the United States and speak English. Culture in which American kids who speak English at home is being raised today. The culture in which they live is the culture of Eminem, Nicki Minaj, Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, Acom. So I need to explain to you old people, people over age 40, who is Acon. Uh, Acon is a singer very popular with white kids and black kids in the United States. He chose the name Akon to remind you of his claim. He claims to be a con, a convicted felon. He claims to have served two years for Grand Theft Auto in the Georgia State Penitentiary. A claim which turns out to be false. 
When it got to be famous, the reporters looked it up and they found that he was arrested on a charge of possession of one item of stolen property. But those charges were quickly dismissed. He's never been convicted of anything. And he's never been inside a penitentiary except to perform. We've gone through a culture in which young men wanted you to think they were scholars working hard to get an A instead of a B in geometry, to a culture in which young men, many young men, want you to think they're convicted felons or gang members, even if they're not. That's a significant change. The first chapter of my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is titled The Culture of Disrespect. And when I talk about the culture of disrespect, I don't mean only that it is a culture that teaches kids to be disrespectful to adults, although it is that. I mean, also, it's a culture that teaches kids to be disrespectful to one another. In the United States, it's common to find kids wearing t-shirts that, that say things like, do I look like I care? I'm out of your league. You look better on Facebook. You look like I need another drink, or I need another drink, you're still ugly. I'm not shy, I just don't like you. You do not find kids wearing these t-shirts outside of North America. I was actually in Sydney, Australia, and I saw a kid wearing a t-shirt that said, I'm not shy, I just don't like you. And I walked up to him, turns out he was an American kid on vacation. <laughs> kids in Australia, in Scotland, uh, in New Zealand, see nothing funny about a t-shirt that says, I'm not shy, I just don't like you. It doesn't strike them as funny, it strikes them as rude. Why would you walk around with a t-shirt saying that? But American kids, raised in the culture of disrespect, think this is funny. Our focus this evening, though, is on one change in the culture, which is gender-specific. And that is social media. And this has happened very quickly. Again, the question I raised a moment ago is, what changed in American culture over the last 50 years? Well, this isn't 50 years. We're talking about 15 years when we talk about social media. 13 years ago, Facebook did not exist According to Nielsen, more than half of 12-year-old American girls are now on Instagram. Seven years ago, Instagram did not exist. This has happened very quickly. To understand why social media are a problem, and why they are more of a problem for girls than they are for boys. I think it's helpful to contrast a girl living today with a girl living in ancient times. Let's think about a girl living in ancient times. By ancient times, I mean 1997, 20 years ago. <laughs> so let's imagine a girl in 1997. It's the evening. She's writing in her diary, by which I mean she's writing with a pen in a bound volume of blank pages. She's writing about who she likes, who she doesn't like, the kind of girl she most admires, the kind of woman she hopes to become. She might write five pages in the evening. She's not going to show that to anybody. If she's got a younger brother, she'll keep it under lock and key. But she's doing some very important work. She's figuring out, who am I? And who do I want to become? What do I really want? doing some very important work. The great American psychologist, Dr. Abraham Maslow, said that figuring out what you want is not trivial. He believed that many adults never figure it out. 
And they're miserable because they're working hard at jobs they don't like in pursuit of objectives that are not meaningful to them. So this girl writing those five pages, she's doing some important work. Fast forward to today. When I meet with students, I ask them, okay, who here is on Instagram? Many hands go up. Uh, Facebook, a few hands. Uh, Twitter, a few hands. Snapchat, all the hands go up. Who here has posted anything on any of those social media in the last week? All the hands go up. Then I'll ask, who here keeps a diary? A few hands. Who here has written in their diary in the last week? One or two hands. One or two hands. The social media have crowded out the diary. And there's not enough time in the day for, for both. And social media account more, are more important, because other kids are watching. So when the scholars look at teens' social media pages, they don't find any five-page essays about what sort of woman I hope to become. You don't find essays at all. You find lots of photos. And that is true for boys as it is uh, true for girls. But it turns out that boys and girls use social media differently. Boy and a girl both go to a football game. They both take pictures of the game. But the boy is taking a picture of the game or of the pretty cheerleader at the game. The girl is turning the phone on herself and taking a hundred selfies at the game. And then that evening, she's going through the hundred selfies and finding two or three where she's laughing and the kids around her are laughing, and she posts that on her Instagram. Here I am at the football game, we had a great time. Who posts more photos? These researchers wonder. Uh, boys or girls? Well, girls post more. How much more? 50% more? 80% more? No, it's 500% more. Girls post five times as many photos as the boys do. I asked the girls today, what's the difference between writing in your diary and posting on Instagram? And the very first girl who raised her hand said, Instagram is public and a diary is private. Bingo. That's right. Instagram is public. Social media are performance. Now, there's nothing wrong with a performance. A performance is a show that you put on to entertain or amuse or impress other people, there's nothing wrong with that from time to time. As long as you realize that the performance has to come to an end, and you take off your mask and resume your real life. My concern, talking with so many American girls, trapped in what I call the cyber bubble of 24-7 texting and social media, is that for many of them, the performance never ends. The mask never comes off, and it is exhausting, and it is draining. She's not living, she is performing. And it wears you out. The difference between the diary and Instagram is the difference between living and performing. These girls are hyper-connected to other girls their age in this 24-7 cyber bubble of texting and social media, but they are disconnected from themselves. Disconnected from themselves. The more time a girl spends on social media, the more likely she is to become depressed. So this is from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. 
Longitudinal cohort study of teenagers finding the more time kids spend on Instagram looking to see what other kids are doing on Instagram or looking to see how many likes they got for their Instagram, the more likely kids are to become depressed. This is true for boys, dashed line, but it is a much stronger effect for girls. Much stronger effect for girls than for boys. It was UNC Chapel Hill. I met with the leader of a different group of investigators, Kathy Charles at Napier University. Different university, different uh, population, different cohort, same result. The more time the girl spends on social media, the more likely girls are to become anxious or depressed. This is much less true uh, for boys. But when I met with Dr. Charles, she didn't know why. She had documented this finding, but she could not explain it. So she was very interested when I shared with her research showing that girls are very ready to believe that other girls are having more fun than they are. Girls are very ready to believe that other girls' lives are more interesting than their own life is. This turns out to be not at all true for boys. Turns out that boys greatly overestimate how interesting their own life is. <laughs> And girls use social media differently than boys do. So Vanessa gets a puppy, and it's a really cute puppy. And she takes 200 pictures of the cute puppy and posts five or six of the cutest pictures on her Instagram. Here's my new puppy. Isn't it cute? But I have some sad news. Vanessa's puppy got loose, ran out into the street, got run over by a truck. Vanessa's puppy's dead. But she did not post a photo of the dead dog on her Instagram. Boys do. <laughs> it would not be unusual to find a boy who posts a photo of the mangled corpse of the dog on his uh, Instagram. Boy and a girl both get sick, they both throw up. The boy posts a photo of his own vomit on his Instagram. Girls never do that. Girls never do that. Now put all these findings together. And imagine a girl, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age, sitting in her room, looking at the other girl's Instagram. There's Emily at the football game, she's having a great time. There's Madison at the party, she's having a blast. There's Vanessa with her new puppy and a cute. I'm just sitting here not doing anything. My life sucks. The more time a girl spends on Instagram, the more likely she is to become anxious or depressed. This is much less true for boys, and now you know why that is so. It's so, first of all, because the boy is less invested in social media. If you don't like Jacob's photo of the pretty cheerleader, uh, he doesn't care, but if you don't like Emily's photo of Emily, she's gonna take it more personally. Uh, and this boy looking at Jacob's vomit or Brett's dead dog is less likely to want to be Jacob or Brett. <laughs> and boys greatly overestimate how interesting their own life is to begin with. So boys are to some extent insulated from the toxic effects of social media. Boys are less vulnerable to the toxic effects of social media than girls are. Boys are more, more vulnerable to the toxic effects of video games than girls are. But we will not get to that topic tonight. Our focus tonight is social media and girls. So what can you do about it? 
Well, the good news is there's plenty of apps out there to help you do your job. You have to begin by recognizing that most 13-year-olds are not masters of time management. Uh, look, in one study they asked this girl, how much time were you on Instagram last night. She said 40 minutes. It was actually more than two hours. But I don't think she was lying. I think she lost track of time. She was having a good time. It's your job to limit, govern, and guide what your kids are doing online. And the good news is there's plenty of apps out there that make your job very easy. And these are listed in your handout apps like My Mobile Watchdog and any mobile. I have no affiliation with any of these programs. There are many of them out there, and they all do pretty much the same thing. They will report to you how much time your kid is spending online and what websites they're doing and what they're doing there. Never use spyware. Spyware is surreptitious. It means your kid doesn't know that you're watching. Explain to your kid, look, my parents insisted on knowing where I was at all times. I didn't even know where you are at all times. Except now it's not out there, it's online. I'm going to know every website you visit and what you do there and I'm going to limit what you do there. I'm not suggesting that you should have a prohibition. I'm not suggesting kids, girls should not be allowed on Instagram. I understand that for many American girls, Instagram is a major means by which they communicate. But you need to set limits. 20 minutes a day is quite sufficient for her to get on, check her messages, respond. Look, she's busy, she's doing other things, and she needs to sleep at night. She doesn't have two hours a day to spend on social media. But she's 13 years old, she's 16 years old, she's not a mature adult. Uh, what's a mature adult? The brain research now tells us. Uh, girls reach full maturity in terms of brain development by about 22 years of age. Boys reach full maturity in terms of brain development by about 30 years of age. So that explains a lot, if you think about it. And some adults are skeptical. Um, some adults would be like, oh, come on. My daughter's just going to Google the phrase, how do I get around parental controls on that nanny? Well, you know, I've met with some of the folks who write the code for that nanny. I've done many events across Silicon Valley. I've met with some of the folks who write the code for that nanny. And I can tell you that that nanny has people whose full-time job is to Google the phrase, how do I get around parental controls on that nanny? And every possible variation on that phrase, and if they find that a kid has found a hole in the software, they patch it, and your program will update. Uh, these programs work. Many girls are going to bed with their phone switched on, and at 2 in the morning, your daughter is getting a text, OMG, Justin and Emily just broke up, this is really big news, we'll have to talk about it, and they're up for an hour in the middle of the night exchanging text messages. You know, some of the uh, issues we're addressing this evening are not easy to fix. Uh, but this one's real easy to fix. The rules of good parenting have not changed in 20 years. 20 years ago, a girl could not accept a phone call at 2 in the morning because the phone would ring and the parents would not allow it because they understood it's more important for kids to get a good night's sleep than to be up for an hour in the middle of the night exchanging gossip. That was true 20 years ago, and it's just as true today. What has changed is, is the technology. 
It's not very easy for a daughter to accept, a girl to accept a text message at 2 in the morning because the phone never rang. It buzzed. She's got a non-vibrate And she's not talking, she's texting. But just because it's technically easy doesn't mean it should happen. But this is a real easy, to prob easy problem to fix. At 9 o'clock at night, you say, device is off, you collect the phones, and you put them in the charger, which stays in the parents' bedroom. She can have it back tomorrow morning. Look, this has to be your call. This is your job. It is not fair, it is not reasonable to put this burden on a 13-year-old or a 16-year-old. What are you supposed to say tomorrow morning at school when your friend says, hey, I texted you last night at midnight. How come you didn't answer? She's supposed to say, well, researchers have found that sleep deprivation in adolescence greatly increases the risk. Of Man, that's ridiculous. You have to allow her to say, hey, my evil parents take my phone every night and night. They won't have it back till the next morning. It is your job. So I was giving this talk and a father said, well, my daughter has her phone in her bedroom, but it's switched off. <laughs> I said, how do you know it's switched off? Do you go in her bedroom? He said, yes. I said, do you knock first? He said, of course. As you should, incidentally. You should not barge without knocking into a teenager's bedroom. And I said, well, when you knock, she could turn the phone off or put it under her pillow. And he was really offended. He said, Dr. Sachs, you're suggesting my daughter would lie to me. <laughs> my daughter would never lie to me. I said, sir, I don't know you. tell you, based on the research, your daughter is more likely to lie to you than to anyone else. <laughs> because she cares what you think. Because she doesn't want to disappoint you. She doesn't want to let you down. Don't put her in that situation. As I said to one of the groups earlier today, there's a lot of wisdom in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, lead us not into temptation. He didn't say, make us strong to resist temptation. He didn't say, give us wisdom to know the right thing to do when we meet temptation. He said, don't lead us into temptation. Because he knew the human heart. And he knew that when you expose us to temptation, we will fall. Don't lead us into temptation. Don't put that temptation before your daughter. It's not fair. It's not age appropriate. No phones in the bedroom. Now, when you get home tonight, <laughs> and you announce to your daughter that you were at a presentation by Dr. Sachs, and Dr. Sachs recommends no phones in the bedroom. Dr. Sachs recommends that you take her phone every night at night. She may not applaud. <laughs> she may protest. She may say, but I use it as my alarm clock. Let her know they still make actual alarm clocks. <laughs> you can go to the store and buy one. I recommend Best Buy, incidentally. They've got some really nifty alarm clocks there. Uh, and now she gets really upset. She says, but what if there's an emergency? Remind her that you still have a landline, a house phone, in the parents' bedroom. If there's a true emergency, her friend is welcome to call the house phone, and you, the parent, will pick up. 
And you, the parent, will decide whether this emergency warrants waking her up at 2 in the morning. It can probably wait. This has to be the parent's call. No devices in the bedroom. That's not just my recommendation. Those are the official guidelines of the American Academy of Pediatrics. You'll find the link to the full text of those guidelines in your handout. Uh, the guidelines were initially published October 2013 and updated just a few months ago. And they advise no unsupervised use of the internet, no internet-enabled devices in the bedroom, no expectation of privacy when kids are using the internet. You have to respect your child's physical privacy, which means the device should be in a public space, in the kitchen. Scholars define sexting as sending or receiving an obscene photo. They define obscene as the nipple of the female breast is exposed or the male or female genitalia are exposed. Sexting per se is uncommon, uncommon. But what has become very common is girls taking provocative photos of themselves and then posting them on Instagram, sending them via Snapchat. Every study in the last three years has suggested at least half, at least 50% of American teenage girls are now engaging in this kind of activity. This is not quite sexting. The nipple of the female breast is not exposed. The male or female genitalia are not exposed. It's not obscene. That's not quite sexting. And it's become very common. And some parents will push back. They'll say, okay, you just said it's not obscene. It's not pornographic. She's not going to get arrested. So why are you making such a fuss? Making a fuss because this girl is presenting herself as an object for the arousal and amusement of boys. So what scholars call self-objectification. We have lots of research showing that girls who engage in that kind of activity are much more likely to agree with statements like, how you look matters more than who you are. Uh, girls who engage in this activity are much more likely to become anxious, less likely to be academically engaged. So in my own practice, a 14-year-old girl who I know was asked by another girl, her friend, but I don't know her friend, her friend said, hey, how about I take some pictures of you taking your clothes off, you take some pictures of me taking my clothes off, and we'll send them to her boyfriend. What's the girl I know supposed to say? What she actually did say was, I can't do that, because my parents have installed my mobile watchdog on my phone. The moment I take a picture, it goes immediately to my mom's phone and to her laptop. Go ahead, try it out. And she handed her phone to her friend, and her friend took a picture, they, and her friend then called mom at work, and say, hey, Mr. Packard, you see, uh, we just took a picture. And Mom's looking at her phone now. Oh, yeah, um, uh, flowers in a vase. Um, gardenias? Okay, thanks, bye. And the girl who had proposed the striptease said, wow, that's amazing. She said, I wish my parents cared about me that much. And the striptease did not happen. Uh, the girl said, parents have no idea what I do with my phone. Now, a parent at... Another version of this presentation said, I don't understand why the striptease did not happen. They could have used it. They, they could have just used the other girl's phone. Um, so in your handout, you will find links to um, two studies of actual sexting, in which researchers interviewed teenagers who were, in fact, sending obscene photos they had taken of themselves and interviewed uh, every teenager and asked girls and boys, why are you doing this? The most common answer the boy gives is, 
some variation on because I really like to. This 16 year old boy really enjoys taking a photo of his own erect penis and sending it to a 15 year old girl. And furthermore, he's absolutely convinced that the 15 year old girl will be excited and aroused to receive it. He doesn't know that the 15 year old girl will very likely be repulsed and disgusted uh, to get this image on her phone. He doesn't know because he's a 16 year old boy. He's got a long way to go. But then they ask the 15-year-old girl, why are you doing this? And the most common answer they get from the 15-year-old girl is some variation on, well, I wish you didn't have to. And the researcher says, what do you mean you wish you didn't have to? You don't have to. No one's forcing you to do this. And the 15-year-old girl says, yeah, but at this school, if you're, if you're one of the cool girls, that's just what you do. This is very common at co-ed schools today. Um, some variation on this. If, if, the, if you're one of the cool girls, this is what you do. You need to give your daughter an excuse to say no. And I think the reason the striptease did not happen is because neither girl really wanted to do it. And the fact that this one girl had the program installed on her phone gave both girls an excuse not to do it. So I visited a leading independent school, a co-ed school, K-12, $200 million endowment, very well regarded, not too far from here. 12-year-old girl at the school had a 14-year-old boyfriend. 14-year-old boyfriend asked her to send him some pictures. Nothing raunchy. He just wanted her to take some pictures of her taking off her blouse to reveal the curve of her bra. So she went into her bedroom, locked the door, and did as he had asked. Uh, took some pictures of herself taking off her blouse, uh, stripped down to her bra and sent, her, sent him the photos using Snapchat. Snapchat claims that you can send a photo using Snapchat with a five second self-destruct and after the recipient has looked at the photos for five seconds, looked at the photo for five seconds, it will vanish without a trace. And if the recipient tries to save uh, the photo using a screenshot, you, the sender, will be notified. She believed that claim. Snapchat knows that claim to be false. They know that there are many uh, dozens of free apps out there whose function is to allow you to save a photo sent by Snapchat without the sender being notified. She didn't know that. The boy knew that. School administrators later determined the boy did not intend for anyone ever to see the photos. But he was at a party. And he set his phone down to grab some chips and talk to some friends. He had his back to his phone. Another boy wandered over, saw the phone, picked it up, scrolled through, found the gallery, found the pictures, forwarded the pictures of this girl to his own phone and then set the phone back where he'd found it, exactly where he'd found it. First boy didn't know anything had happened. Second boy then post, posted all this girl's photo on his own Instagram. Within three days, everyone at the school had seen him. Boys this girl didn't even know were coming up to her and saying, Hey Emily, how about you put on a striptease for us? 
This girl had been invited to a three-day ski weekend. The parents, uh, the girl whose parents were hosting this ski weekend, providing a bus uh, to take the girls to the ski resort, lodging at the ski resort, and lift tickets for each of the girls. The parents who were providing that, the girl whose parents were providing that, called up this girl and said, you know, I, I hate to make this call, but my mom is totally freaking out because all the other girls' moms are calling my mom and saying that if you're going to be there, they won't let their daughter go because they don't think you're some kind of bad influence. So I have to uninvite you. I'm really sorry. I have to uninvite you. This girl had no psychiatric history. She'd always done well, had lots of friends. She collapsed, refused to go to school, hysterical sobbing, started cutting herself with razor blades. Who's to blame? The girl, her boyfriend, the other boy? No, they're kids. <coughs> Grown-ups aren't to blame. Parents aren't to blame. But this is a very grown-up device. With this device, I can take a photo, and once I send that photo, it's gone. I cannot get it back. I have no control over what the recipient's going to do with it. That's a very grown-up functionality. If you're going to put such a device in the hands of a child, then you are responsible for every photo they take. So I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal sharing this story and making very specific recommendations, which you'll find in your handout. At what age is it appropriate, based on the evidence, for a child to possess a smartphone, by which I mean a phone that can take a photo and send a photo? Certainly, no child under 13 years of age should possess such a phone, and most 13-year-olds are not ready for it. But if you're going to give your teenager a smartphone or allow them to use one, regardless of who's paying for it, then you, the parent, must install on that device apps like My Mobile Watchdog, NetNanny Mobile, and explain to your child, you will see every photo they take the moment they take it, and if you see any inappropriate photo, they lose the device indefinitely. Or don't give them a phone. And a lot of parents will say, look, that's just unrealistic. My daughter's doing all these activities. What if a ride doesn't show? There aren't any pay phones out there anymore. I don't want her going up to a stranger asking to borrow their phone. She's got to have a way to reach me. All right. That's not an argument for a smartphone. That's an argument for a dumb phone. Uh, and by a dumb phone, I mean a phone that can make a phone call and receive a phone call, and that is all. There are many styles available, and you don't know about them, because they're not marketed to you, they're marketed to the elderly. <laughs> These phones typically have a large display and large keys. My father-in-law has one of these phones. Uh, he's 81 years old. Um, and uh, I can tell you the battery lasts forever. He charges about every other month. <laughs> you can give your child one of these. And that takes care of any possible safety concern. If she's stranded, she can call you on this phone. She does not need a smartphone, a phone that can take a photo and send a photo electronically. But if you're going to give your child a smartphone, then you must install on it monitoring software and explain to your daughter 
that if you see any inappropriate photo, she loses the device. And a lot of parents push back. One parent said to me, look, I don't want to violate my daughter's privacy. If she doesn't want me to see her photos, I'm fine with that. I don't want to see her photos if she doesn't want, me, if she doesn't want me to see them. I'm fine with that. I respect her privacy. I don't want to violate her privacy. And I explained to that parent, like, the most important thing you must teach your daughter or your son is that there is no such thing as privacy to any photo that you share electronically, whether it's on a phone, on a laptop, a secure website or not. I could see the parent was not persuaded. But the job became a lot easier when I discovered the three magic words. The three magic words are General David Petraeus. <laughs> In case you don't recall the story, David Petraeus graduated top of his class at West Point, first in his class at Fort Leavenworth, earned a doctorate at Princeton, Brigadier General at age 46. George W. Bush appointed him commanding officer. Barack Obama then appointed him a director of the CIA. You would think he would know that there is no such thing as privacy to any photo that you share electronically. But somehow, he didn't get the memo. And he and his mistress, Paula Broadwell, thought, we're so smart, we're so clever, we have our passwords, our secure websites, nobody will ever find out. <laughs> Career over. What's the moral of the story? David Petraeus and Paula Broadwell. Well, I think there are several morals. One is don't cheat on your spouse. <laughs> Another is don't share any photo in any format on any network, secure or not, unless you're prepared for everyone to see it in the newspaper tomorrow. And you don't teach that by preaching. You teach that by inculcating virtuous habits by saying, look, I will see every photo you take. If you don't want me to see it, don't take it. Don't let your daughter get in the habit of taking photos she should not take. Look, the challenges have changed. 20 years ago, there used to be a public service announcement would come on American television at 10 o'clock at night. It's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your kids are? Because 20 years ago, the dangers were all out there. The drugs, the gangs, the alcohol. It's all out there. And if your daughter was home alone in her bedroom, you were a good parent 20 years ago. And many of us grew up in that area. And we think, well, uh, my daughter's home alone upstairs in her bedroom, so I'm a good parent, right? But if she's got a mobile phone, she's, she could be uploading pornography, he could be downloading pornography. She could be engaged in cyberbullying, he could be a victim of cyberbullying. Challenges today have evolved. You have to be the parent. And so many American parents are confused. They want to be their kid's best friend. But a friend is a peer. A friend cannot command. A friend cannot say, I will not allow you to pick out an ice cream right before supper. But a parent has to say that. A friend cannot say, I'm taking your phone so you can get to bed and get some sleep. But a parent must say that, and only a parent,
can say that. There are any number of kids out there who can be your kid's best friend, but none of those kids can be the parent. Only the parent can do that job. And some parents really do understand that, and they are installing apps like My Mobile Watchdog or Net Nanny, and sometimes even going a little further. One mom sent her daughter an anonymous text saying, hey, how's stuff? I'm new in town. Will you send me some pictures? Her daughter responded, no, I know this is you, mom. Please stop. <laughs> Proud of you, honey. Keep making good choices. Love, mom. So what really matters? What should our top priority uh, be as children, uh, as parents with our children? So, until recently, the answer to that question would have been a guess, a matter of opinion, perhaps a topic for a sermon, but today we have good research that can inform the answer to that question. I'm referring now to longitudinal cohort studies, where you refer to a large number of children earlier in life, early in life, follow them through childhood, through adolescence, into adulthood. In some cases, to age 32, age 38, that allows you to measure what characteristic of a child measured in childhood predicts good outcomes in that individual when they become an adult. Well, what's a good outcome? Well, let's see. Uh, having a job rather than being unemployed would be nice. Uh, not being addicted to drugs or alcohol. Uh, not being convicted of a major felony. Uh, researchers look at all these and others outcomes. And they find that virtue and character predict good outcomes, much more than any other parameter. Virtue and character, for example, self-control, as measured when a kid is 9 or 12 or 14. How do you measure self-control in a 12-year-old? You don't talk to the kid, you talk to their classmates and their teachers, and you say, can this kid wait? for their turn. Can this kid listen, or are they always interrupting? Low self-control, as measured when the kid is 12 years of age, predicts a high risk of drug and alcohol abuse when that individual is 32 years old, 20 years later, and a high risk of poor physical health. High self-control, when the measured when the kid is 12, predicts a low risk of poor health and addiction, addiction to drugs and alcohol 20 years later. Low self-control, measured when the kid is 12 years old, predicts a high risk of financial struggles 20 years down the road. High self-control, low risk of financial struggles. Low self-control, measured when the kid is 12, predicts a low credit score in that individual 20 years down the road. High self-control predicts a high credit score, and that's after adjusting for income. Some people with high income have low credit scores. Some people with low income have high credit scores. What really matters? What should our first priority be as parents? Teaching virtue and character. It's not a sermon. It's a robust empirical finding. And the funny thing is that American parents used to know that, even though the research wasn't published. American parents used to say things like, Hey, I'd rather you get a C, honestly, than cheat and get an A. 
And yet many American parents now they say things like, hey, you want to get into Princeton? You want to get into Stanford? You got to have straight A's. And there has been an explosion in cheating among American kids over the past 20 years, as I document. Dr. James Heckman, Nobel Prize winner, has been working with one of these longitudinal cohort studies for 40 years. That's what he looked like when the study launched, and that's what he looks like today. Dr. Heckman writes that grades and test scores are poor predictors of success in life because they only measure cognitive achievement. Character. Character plays the pivotal role. What parameter measured when a child is 12 years of age powerfully predicts health and wealth and happiness in that individual 20 years down the road? It is self-control. And the other sub-traits of conscientiousness, including honesty. Researchers have known for many years now that every human personality can be mapped on a five-dimensional space. The five dimensions of human personality are conscientiousness and its subtraits of self-control and honesty, openness to new ideas, friendliness and agreeableness, emotional stability, extroversion, introversion. Some elements of human personality are hard to change, notably extroversion, introversion. If a child is very shy, very introverted, you can teach them a script and tell them to go into the party and execute the script and they'll go into the party and extend their hand and say, hey, I'm Bill Clinton, I want to get to know you. It's not going to change them. They know it's fake. And they don't become more extroverted as a result. It doesn't work. So some traits are not easy to change. And all of us become more fixed in personality as we get older, as a rule. By the time you're 60, you're pretty much done. <laughs> but even young adults can change on some traits, most notably self-control and honesty, turn out to be very amenable to change. How do you improve a child's self-control? You say, no dessert until you eat your broccoli. No games until the homework is done and the chores are done. And if those have not been the rules in your house, and you sit down with your child, and you say, we're going to make some changes here. We, we have been doing some things right. We're going to make some changes. From now on, no dessert until you eat your broccoli. No games until the chores are done and the homework is done. The first day, there will be an explosion, a tantrum. In the first week, there'll be silent treatment, cold shoulder. But if both parents stick their ground, after six weeks, your child will have better self-control. I've seen this on many occasions. We have good scholarly research supporting that point. You can change your child's self-control. It is not innate. It is learned. And you have to teach it. You have to be the first teacher. That's the job of the parent. The parent is the first teacher of virtue. Teaching right and wrong requires that you teach from a position of authority, but many American parents want to be their kid's friend who makes suggestions. You know, this is a democracy. We're going to make a suggestion. We like to suggest uh, that, uh, uh, you know, son, don't you think that pornography is uh, disrespectful to women? Question mark. Um, 
And uh, some responds, no, I don't, and I don't care two hoots what you think. Except he doesn't say two hoots, he uses a different expression. Teaching virtue requires that you teach from a position of authority. If it's just your opinion, your son is free to disregard your opinion. And many parents have abandoned that authority. And I have been a medical doctor in the United States for more than 30 years, and I have witnessed the collapse of parenting firsthand. As recently as 20 years ago, American parents used to be comfortable saying things like, do unto others. That's a command, it's an imperative. Do unto others. But over 20 years, that command has morphed, has softened into a question. And the question usually reads something like, well, how would you feel if someone did that to you? And the parent has no idea what to say when their son responds, if someone did that to me, I'd kick him in the nuts and then I'd sit on his face. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be on your heart. Usually translated in English something along the lines of teach them diligently. But that's not remotely what the Hebrew says. It would be easy to say that in Hebrew. The verb would be lamed, but that's not the verb. The verb is shanan. What does shanan mean? Shanan means to chisel, to engrave, inscribe them in the hearts of your children. Right? Translation. You'll find that exegesis in Deuteronomy 6, on pages 133-134 of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Where I also share a column by a regular contributor to the New York Times who claims that enlightened parenting means setting your child loose to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. And if by so doing, the columnist continues, if, if by so doing they become a stranger to you, then so be it. That's enlightened parenting. Well, actually it's not enlightened parenting. It's a dereliction of duty. What is childhood for? A horse, a four-year-old horse, is a mature adult. A four-year-old child has barely begun. And a horse is a much bigger animal than a human. What's the point? Why is childhood so long? Childhood in our, in our species is longer than the entire lives of many other mammals. Why is childhood so long? We don't have to guess. We have scholars who studied this question. And the answer they give is that childhood has to be that long, because it takes that long for parents to teach the culture to the child. Teaching virtue to your child is essentially human. It is an essential feature of what it means to be a human being. It is what this most distinguishes, arguably most distinguishes, our species from others, our astonishingly long childhood. If you set your child loose to discover for themselves their own right and wrong, you're not being a good parent, you are being derelict. And what your child will discover is Akon, Eminem, 50 Cent, Justin Timberlake, Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, Caitlyn Jenner. It's 
It's your job to choose the school your child will attend. <coughs> the choice of school is arguably the most consequential decision made in the life of a child. It will influence more than any other parameter over which you have any control. It will influence their attitude towards every content area, math, science, language, arts, social studies, sciences. It influences more than any other parameter you can control the risk that they will use drugs or alcohol. It influences more than any other parameter you can control the risk that they will engage in sex, in risky sexual behavior. A child is not competent to make this choice. And yet I find many parents don't understand that. Many parents now function as educational consultants, driving their kids around to various schools, and the parent makes a recommendation, but the final decision is left in the hand of the child. And the child is not competent to make that call. The parents will say, well, I want her to be happy. I just want her to be happy. But you are the parent, and her long-term happiness is your concern, not her happiness today or tomorrow. Whether she will be happy 10 years from now, that's what you've got to think about. In the class of parenting, I describe a mother and father who carefully researched the local schools and found one school that was clearly a great match for their daughter. A fine school, energetic and motivated teachers, really a powerhouse in every way. But the daughter, in one day visit to another school, had hit it off with another student at that school. The daughter wanted to go to the second school, which was a dilapidated school with unmotivated and poorly trained teachers, clearly an inferior choice. But the parents let the girl choose the second school. They said, I just wanted to be happy. She is not the best judge. On the basis of one day's encounter with one student at the school, might not even be there next year. Your child is not competent to make this choice. And if your child says, I want to uh, leave this school, I want to go to a different school, I'm not happy at this school. I'm not happy is not good enough. Kids will choose a school based on where they think they'll have fun, where they think they'll have lots of friends. But you are choosing school based on more important considerations, like where is the risk of drug and alcohol use greater? Where is the risk of sexual violence greater? And if your daughter says, I want, I'm not happy at this school, I think I'd be happier at some other school. That's not good enough. If she says, you know, this school doesn't offer AP Computer Science or AP Physics. I want to go to the school that does. That's a persuasive argument. Your job is to teach virtue. Which virtue? Well, humility. I devote a chapter of my book to defending that claim. Why humility? Because humility has become the most un-American of virtues, and many Americans misunderstand humility.
And I don't blame them. You know, they live in American culture, which is all about walking tall and standing proud. And the kids often do not understand. I was very impressed with the kids at this school. They really nailed it. Uh, but I was at another Catholic school, and I asked the students, what is humility? And the boy raised his hand, and I called him, and he said, humility means trying to convince yourself you're dumb when you, when you know you're smart. I said, actually, that's not humility. That is psychosis. <laughs> I said, humility means being as interested in other people as you are in yourself. And the kids at that other school are all giving me a blank look because they've never heard this before. They've received no instruction. And how should they know if they have received no instruction? But, so, better advice, as I shared with the students earlier today, better advice found in the words of the prophet Micah. So, Micah chapter 6, the prophet is asking, okay, what does the Lord require of you? You've got to dot all the I's and cross all the T's? He said, no, so here, here's what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly, humbly with your God. But many Americans are really confused about that. And one mom said to me, I don't want my daughter to be humble. I want her to have high self-esteem. So when the big job comes along, she'll go for it. I don't want her to be humble and hang back. I said, I said to mom, okay, you're, I think you're a little confused. You're confusing humility with timidity. Those are not the same thing. In many ways, they're opposite. And I agree, you don't want your daughter to hang back. But you don't want her to have high self-esteem. High self-esteem is not a virtue. The virtue you're thinking of is called courage. Courage. Courage means that you know your shortcomings. You know your weaknesses. You understand the challenge, and you find the courage to push forward anyhow. Bloated self-esteem means overestimating your own significance. And there can be two outcomes. It can be punctured, which results in deflated esteem, low self-esteem, and depression. Or it can remain bloated, in which case the result is narcissism and resentment. Humility will lead to wisdom. There are no good outcomes with bloated self-esteem. But many American schools now systematically indoctrinate kids into inflated self-esteem. I was in an American elementary school, third grade classroom, and the assignment, each kid was to write their name on a white piece of paper and attach to their name five adjectives describing how amazing they were. And Mateo here has written a genius, misspelled. <laughs> Excellent, misspelled. Talented, awesome, and marvelous. I'm not picking on Mateo, he's just doing the assignment. There's no awareness on the part of the school how puffing up self-esteem leads to narcissism. Narcissism means you think you're better than everyone else. And to fragility, because it only takes one pinprick to blow the bubble and to resent them. Because if I'm so great and wonderful, how come I'm not rich and famous? The result of pride, inflated self-esteem, is dishonor and unhappiness. Humility leads to wisdom. That's not a guess or a sermon. That's an empirical finding.
from longitudinal cohort studies, I devote two chapters of the collapse of parenting to reviewing those cohort studies. So it is a scientific finding, but it is also a line from the book of Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 2. Bazadon ve'avokalon ve'etzinu'im chokhmah With pride comes dishonor, but with humility, wisdom. But you have a challenge. Your challenge is that you live in the United States. I took this photograph in Times Square. Pepsi's slogan, live for now. Don't worry about the sugar, live for now. If it feels good, do it. Live for now, whatever floats your boat. The real hazard of American culture is that it undermines self-control, undermines humility, disrespects parental authority. So what can you do about it? Going back to the beginning, the breaking of bonds across generations, you've got to recreate those bonds. You've got to each summer with your kids. No devices allowed at the table. The benefits are huge. In this study, Frank Algar and his colleagues asked over 10,000 adolescents coast to coast, in the last seven days, how many meals have you had at home with a parent? Zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, or seven. And then quantified for each kid, internalizing problems like anxiety and depression, externalizing problems like hitting the wall in anger, positive well-being, pro-social behavior, and life satisfaction, and found a huge effect, not just comparing zero to seven, but in almost every step along the way. So if you compare five meals at home with a parent with six evening meals at home with a parent, going from five to six, you see a significant decrease in internalizing problems, a significant decrease in externalizing problems, a significant increase in positive well-being, pro-social behavior, and life satisfaction. And yet, what has happened? In 1992, researchers asked teenagers, have you had a meal at home with a parent in the last 24 hours? In 1992, two-thirds of teenagers said, yes, I have. In 2005, two-thirds of teenagers said, no, I have not. That's a huge change in a short period of time. Time is precious. So, my wife and I recently, for the first time in many years, went to a new car dealer. And we were horrified when the dealer wanted us to buy the rear seat entertainment system. And here's the flyer the dealer handed us. Let's take a look at this. Two kids wearing headsets looking at a screen. Mom is smiling, looking back at them. Mom seems to be saying, hey, this is great. We could drive five hours and never have to talk to my kids at all. What are we thinking? Time in the car is precious. When you're with your child in the car, you should be listening to her and she should be listening to you, not to Miley Cyrus or Akon or Justin Bieber. No devices, no headsets, no earbuds in the car behind the bedroom. In American family, it is now typical. Mother, father, son, son, and daughter come home, and within five minutes, they're each in a different room looking at a different screen. And then the parents say, hey, how would you like to go out as a family this Saturday afternoon? And kids say, I don't think so. I'm going over to my friend's house. And parents are like, wow, why don't they value family? Well, why should they? If they've had no experience of family time together. No screens in the bedroom. Again, that's the official guideline of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I find parents of younger kids who are driving their kids around on a 
Saturday afternoon from one play date to another. Big mistake. Cancel the play date. Make a family date instead. Find parents of older kids who say, well, you know, my daughter's got all this homework, it's got to be done on a laptop, and, you know, she's not finished till midnight. Ban the bedroom. Have her bring her laptop into the kitchen, and the homework's done by 8.30, she's in bed by 9. She wasn't lying. She didn't realize how much time she was spending on Instagram and shopping sites. If the laptop's in the kitchen, you're sitting up. I practice what I preach. I'm sitting at the kitchen table answering emails on my laptop. My daughter's sitting at the kitchen table. She's doing her homework on a laptop, which the school requires. But then she started whistling uh, the Bach Little Feud, which is her favorite song right now. came in on the second voice, and my wife came in on the third voice, and we uh, kind of, sort of, got through it. And it was a real family moment. No words were spoken. Beyond the bedroom. Nothing in the bedroom except a bed. TV should be in a common room. You cannot have a family life if the family is solid together. So I practice what I preach. Uh, my wife's parents live with us. That's my father-in-law, the one with the uh, dumb phone. He's uh, sitting by the fire. That's his wife, my mother-in-law. That's my wife and my daughter. They're not trying to entertain one another. They're in the same room. That's what family life means. You don't have to entertain one another, but you are together. This used to be common. It is now rare. It costs nothing. Prioritize the family. If activities regularly conflict with supper, then family comes first. So many American families are picking their daughter up from school, driving her to this activity, then to ballet, and they're eating fast food in the car on their way from one activity to another. And the unintended message of that overscheduling is that family is the lowest priority. That's not the right message to send. Family comes first. Prioritize the family. Want to make a plug for this school? Uh, which will be offering a family enrichment program beginning this fall. Uh, the, I put the link in your handout online. It is familyenrichmentusa.org, and I'm sure the school will have more to tell you about that. But I want to conclude with a word about the confusion of many American parents. Many American parents think they have to choose between being the tiger mom, who's pushing her daughter to achieve, and the Irish setter dad who just wants the kids to do whatever they desire. Both are mistaken. The last chapter of my book, The Class of Parenting, is titled The Meaning of Life. My point there is you have to teach your child a sense of what it's all about. It's about more than what college you get into or how much money you earn. Because without that bigger context, pushing your child to achieve without a sense of why, why, am I bought, why do I have to work this hard to get into Princeton? That's not a good enough answer. Why do I have to go to Princeton to get a good job? Why do I have to get a good job to earn a lot of money? Why do I have to earn a lot of money to have a good life? Well, what does that mean? It's got to be more than just having a lot of money. Because if you don't have a better answer than that, then working hard at school becomes a race to nowhere, to borrow the title of the documentary making that point. And there's no point, and the result is anxiety, depression, and disengagement.
But you can't just be an iris-centered dad letting kids do whatever they desire if you have not first educated the, their desire. Because we now have lots of research that if you let American teens do whatever they desire, what girls most desire is spend three hours on social media, and what boy, boys most desire is video games and pornography. You've got to educate desire and still a longing for something higher and deeper and better than video games and social media. So we began with the question, why are American parents today, why are American kids today, so much more likely to be anxious, depressed, or disengaged in kids elsewhere today than American kids a generation ago? What can we do about it? Here are my answers. My answers are that parents have allowed relations with same-age peers to displace the family, but you can change that. Parents have allowed social media to displace real-world experience. We didn't get to video games tonight. Uh, but you can change that. Parents have largely failed, American parents have largely failed to teach virtue and character with authority, but you can change that. Uh, so you'll find more on these topics in my books, Girls on the Edge, Boys Adrift, and The Collapse of Parenting. The handout, I actually don't think it's online right now. I think I have to put it online. I think my server was down. So make a note of the handout uh, link, and it should be on there later tonight. The handout is mynameleonardsacks.com slash oakcrest.pdf. It is case sensitive, it is all lowercase. My contact information is in the